Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. I forgot my job there for a second. Um, joining me for today's, this week's show is uh, a guy who's kind of become our uh, regular co-host now, um, although not my regular co-host, but the Deputy Editor-in-Chief, retired Captain Bill Bray. Hello, Bill. Hello. Great to be here. How are you? Awesome. Yeah, so uh, one of the perks uh, of working here in Beach Hall, the headquarters of the Naval Institute, is we get to get the issues of proceedings and naval history before everybody else. And so today we had a windfall. We had both the November issue of proceedings, and I'll show the cover to the folks on Facebook Live. It's our marine theme issue. Very cool boots boots on the cover, right? And we also got have the new issue of naval history, and there's uh, also a marine theme. It, it talks about the Battle of Tarawa, um, which uh, was a sort of unnecessary battle, it turns out, uh, in, in hindsight, um, but uh, a very uh, bloody slog. And, and, and as Richard and the team always do, it's uh, amazing insights and history come to life in, in this issue of uh, naval history. Um, so what else have we got happening around... Uh, Oh, our boss got an award yesterday That's right. up in New York. Um, so uh, Admiral Vice Admiral Pete Daly um, was uh, received an award from the National Maritime Association for uh, a lifetime of, of service and uh, and uh, accomplishment in the the field of maritime and sea services. And so we're very proud of him for receiving this award. It was uh, bestowed at the New York Yacht Club. Um, some of our teammates are up there, um, and they made a weekend of it, uh, which is probably a good idea once you're in downtown or midtown Manhattan. So, again, we're very proud of uh, Admiral Daly, and uh, congratulations, sir, on that uh, on that award. Well-deserved. Yep. Well, well, let's get right to our guest. Um, so why don't you uh, introduce uh, our, our guy? Absolutely. I'm, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Marine Corps First Lieutenant Christian Heller. Um, he was the first place winner in the uh, 2018 Naval Intelligence Essay Contest with his uh, essay, Make Counterintelligence a Main Effort. Uh, actually, today, uh, just uh, a few hours ago, I was out at the Naval Intelligence Professionals uh, Fall Luncheon. Uh, we co-sponsored this essay with Naval Intelligence Professionals, and the uh, prize uh, prizes were uh, awarded, uh, unfortunately, um, Christian is, uh, as Ward mentioned, is in Kuwait, so he wasn't there. But I presented the plaques to the second and third place winner. Um, Are we going to mail Christian his plaque? Christian? We have your plaque. <laughs> uh, Lisa will Lisa Doherty or uh, will get your address and get it in the mail to you. Unless you're going to be swinging by Annapolis anytime soon, which does sounds like that's not going to happen. The, the the plaque will look good on the wall of the Kayak there. <laughs> you know, in your, little, your little cubby, um, uh, your little I love me, whatever you're allowed to have over there. Um, so, Christian, uh, thanks for calling in. As you mentioned before we went on air, you're seven hours ahead of us. Um, so it's actually 10.30 p.m. over there. Um, so give us a sort of a scene setter. What, what's going on there and what, what job are you holding down now? So, yeah, gentlemen, thanks for having me on. Um, really an honor to be selected as the, the winner of the essay contest and then have an opportunity to talk about it again. Uh, I'm kind of a geek for what I do. I love CI, and so having an opportunity to actually talk about it and uh, shed some light on the community is pretty special. As far as right now, yes, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm deployed out in Kuwait supporting Operation Inherent Resolve. That's the mission to defeat ISIS in Iraq and Syria. 
uh, and the mission continues today. It's a uh, it's it continues to be an ongoing uh, important line of effort out here in CENTCOM, and I'm I'm proud to be a part of it. Um, but I'm also happy to make time for you guys here on a on a Friday night. Uh, so well, th- thanks for thanks for that. Um, uh, we were kidding that we pulled you away from the bar, but uh, I know that's not not true. Um, Friday nights in Kuwait are just like every other. There's no such thing as a Friday night in Kuwait. Um, what I will note on your bio uh, is not only are you an Academy grad, and both uh, Billy B and I are, are also uh, Naval Academy graduates, but you're the third Academy grad on the podcast who also did the Oxford University uh, postgraduate thing. Um, so uh, that's becoming quite a thing here. Um, so congratulations on that. And we'll also note uh, that you were a Rhodes Scholar. Um, so that's uh, that's some pretty impressive uh, Vita stuff going into your uh, your active duty service. Um, what did you get out of your your time at at Oxford? What did that What was that all about? Uh, well, I got a wife, so that's pretty exciting. Oh, did you marry? Uh, a, did you marry a British girl? No, I actually married a Canadian, another oh. uh, Canadian Rhodes Scholar, who I met while we were studying over there together. Oh, okay, okay. Who is, much smarter and much more capable than me. I think she actually deserved to study at Oxford. Uh, unlike, I think I, I just conned my way in at some point. That's but how I got into Oxford the academy. Was... <laughs> That's how we all got it, yeah, right? I guess. But... I don't know. You're smarter than me, at least on paper. <laughs> no, I mean, Ox- Oxford was an incredible experience. Uh, and I feel really blessed that I, so I grew up in North Dakota, grew up in a really small town. Um, and, to be able to go to a school of that caliber and to study with both the students and the faculty uh, of that caliber were opportunities that I only got because of the Naval Academy, uh, because you know someone in the admissions department decided to take a random chance on a on a kid from Mercer County, uh, and then I had great professors and mentors along the way who helped me get there. Um, and so I, I guess uh, with having three of us on the show. Uh, the program must be working in, in some regards, as I'm sure those, whoever, whoever else you had has been probably plenty capable and interesting to chat with as well. So, um, Well, we've had uh, some other Academy grads like Admiral Mullen <laughs> and Admiral Alcoin, and, uh, but we've, uh, we've been l- lucky on the show uh, to have some great guests. And uh, we created the show, the podcast, to uh, allow uh, contributors to put finer points on their submissions or, uh, or just uh, introduce uh, what, they, what they wrote on the topic. So um, let's talk about counterintelligence. So first, I'm not an intelligence officer. Billy B is. You are. What is counterintelligence against any other type of intelligence? That depends on who you ask is the the tough way to decide it and uh so i look at i'm being a marine and being marine trained i look at counterintelligence from the as the marine corps defines it and i want to be a good marine if i didn't cite right at least one mcdp and so the marine corps defines it, it intelligence as a whole the marine corps puts two purposes to one of which is to help the commander understand the enemy the enemy in the environment to help them make decisions the second objective, right, the second of two objectives for intelligence is counterintelligence. It's protecting friendly forces. And so counterintelligence is best easily thought of the defensive half of the intelligence effort. And I think that's the best way to think about it when we're trying to think about it, especially in a, in a military counterintelligence purpose 
and for selling counterintelligence to the capability to military commanders. Now, what often happens is that you have that division of offensive and defensive, whereas for offensive intelligence, the intelligence trying to help the commander make their decision, that's where 90% of his collection methods fall into. That's what SIGINT falls into. That's what OSINT falls into. That's what IMINT and his recon falls into. It all goes to helping the, the offensive intelligence mission. And then counterintelligence becomes the afterthought. It becomes your one or two random guys just kind of doing their, their CI thing in the corner that the J2 may or may not understand, the commander may or may not understand. Um, and to me, that, that limits both the mission of counterintelligence and the capabilities of the counterintelligence professionals trying to support um, the commander. And I guess that leads into then kind of the purpose of the, the essay is that thinking of counterintelligence as a mission, as a defensive mission, is important. That is what counterintelligence is, whether it be for intelligence services, whether it be for um, the counterterror mission, which, is, uh, which it often falls into, whether it be for stopping the subversion and sabotage purposes. It is a defensive intelligence mission. However, the military has mainly made CI into an MOS as well. And making CI into an MOS, uh, military occupational specialty, uh, as well as a mission, means that those two things got lined up together. And that's an incorrect way of thinking about it. A, a commander doesn't, when a, when a commander, Navy, Marine Corps, is planning for a mission, if he's planning for an offensive mission, he doesn't say, you know, I'm taking my, my tanks, my artillery, my helicopters, these are for the offense but I'm using my mortars for the defense. Mortars are only for the defense. No, he uses all of those same assets for an offensive mission. And that same sort of attitude should be applied to the defensive mission uh, when it comes to intelligence. We need to take all of those different capabilities, the SIGINT, the OSINT, the, the IMIT. You take the other capabilities, like the force protection specialist, the anti-terror specialist, and they also fill that, that defensive intelligence mission, that counterintelligence mission. So, Christian, you you would define, and this is why uh, this is a very interesting article for me as a career naval intelligence officer. And I, you know, I was a fleet N two, and when I thought of CI, um, and I, there was a CI issue, intrated the NCIS agent to brief me on whatever the issue was. Um, it it generally concerned, um, you know, potential. Um, Surveillance by uh, you know foreign intelligence service uh, penetration perhaps or an offco an offensive uh, CI operation that they were working on that I needed to be aware of but um, I think reading you know editing and then reading your article again and listening to you now it's uh, it's more comprehensive in in your view um, it's really about um, understanding holistically what the uh, adversary is doing in in the intelligence field against us. Absolutely. And I think you, you've kind of hit a nail on the head of the perception of what CI is. Um, I think commanders, J2 supported units who have worked with CI, maybe extensively, maybe not, have, a, have their own perception of what CI is. And so in your case, right, working with an NCIS agent, uh, briefing you on what you need to know, giving you maybe your annual training is all that they've had interaction with them. That is one aspect of, of CI. That limited aspect of CI is inadequate 
for fulfilling the Navy and Marine Corps' needs, for fulfilling the DOD needs, for fulfilling really the national CI needs of America. And I, I talk about this a little bit, but maybe the best way to, to, to frame this is that in one geographic area, in one area of responsibility, you have a CI mission. That CI mission at the tactical level for a FOB commander, for a, a squadron commander, for a harbor area, that requires one set of CI skills. That's mainly going to be a force protection sort of mission. At the operational level, that's going to require a different level of CI skills. That's going to require some of the, the weird bullet points that you see in the CI manuals, like CI support to military deception, CI support to, to military planning, um, your CI support to your, your collection efforts. Uh, and then in that same area, you might also have a strategic level CI, like you mentioned, like an OPCO operation going on, or uh, high-level cyber and CI cybersecurity issues going on. And that's only in the vertical, the tactical, operational, strategic level way of thinking about it. On the horizontal left-to-right spectrum, you may have four, five, a dozen, two dozen different state, non-state, hybrid state actors uh, trying to conduct intelligence collection on U.S. forces that are trying to plan attacks, that are trying to conduct terrorist-style attacks on U.S. forces. And all of that falls into the realm of what the uniformed CI professional is responsible for. And that, those, that wide variety of missions requires a, a wide variety of capabilities and professionals to actually give those different commanders what they need to accomplish their mission. So is the Marine Corps doing it right now in terms of career path, or is there something that needs to be attended to? So this is when I put the disclaimer on this, right, is that I'm not a 35-year CI veteran, right? I got my limited experience. I know what I know. I think the, C I think the Marine Corps does a, a good job of it. Um, I think the Marine Corps has a, a good blend where we make our O211s both human and CI, right? So we bring both of those capabilities to the fight with a higher level of experience and a longer training pipeline than some other services like the Army do, which means that for, for a MU, for instance, for an ESG, that commander has in his two, in his four, in his six, you know, uh, CI human Marines that are embedded with them has a much wider range of options for how to employ them than, say, an equivalent uh, Army, you know, DCT commander might have available. Uh, and it allows them to employ them in a much wider range of capabilities. Now, I think where the, the Marine Corps and, you know, without the Marine Corps and really all of the services to an extent, and again, I don't know how far, in, you know, in some realms of like NCIS or uh, the civilian CI side get into this, um, but don't, we don't do a good enough job getting those other capabilities to the fight, of getting the force protection capabilities integrated with the CI capabilities, of getting the OSINT capabilities integrated with the CI capabilities, of understanding uh, what the SIGINT capabilities that you might need are, of understanding what your anti-terror 
or your regional expertise knowledge levels might be for that mission. Uh, and that kind of leads to the great divide in the solution, right? So the question is always, well, if you're not doing it right, what do you do to fix it? And I would say this is when there's the two common themes that I, I kind of touched on, but you know, after rereading it, I probably could have elaborated better. And it, there are the, the two options being you either give your current CI MOS, your current CI professionals, more capabilities, you give them more training, uh, you give them a longer training pipeline, you give them more advanced training, or you bring more capabilities to the CI team. You develop that, uh, I want to say all source, but that's not the right term because I don't want to mix doctrine. You, are, you bring those different MOSs and different skill sets into a CI team under the guise of an NCIS agent, under the guise of a Marine CI agent to accomplish the required mission set. And I think it's that second one. It's less bureaucratically intrusive. It gets people to the fight faster. Uh, the CI training pipeline is already very long, and so to add anything more to that uh, is a tough battle to fight. And so by trying to cl more closely integrate other MOSs and capabilities into the CI team, I think is the, the quicker and better way to actually get there because – for that same capability, for, for OSIN, for instance, rather than taking ACI Marine and having them go through the you know, one-week or two-week OSINT sort of class, you actually bring an OSINT SME onto that team. Uh, and so it's not necessarily bringing a 25% capability. It's bringing 100% OSINT capability uh, to that team. So this isn't theory to you. I mean, you're calling us from Kuwait, um, and you're prosecuting the war against ISIS as we speak. Um, so... How do you feel um, that you're, uh, you know, postured against that that threat? And then from there, I want to talk about a, a peer threat. But, you know, you're fighting, you're in the middle of fighting an asymmetric war. How do you feel we're postured CI-wise uh, as you, uh, you know, look, look to beat ISIS day to day? So it's tough to give an accurate response on that, um, and I'm I'm kind of heismaning the question a little bit, to to be honest. Uh, I think it's a much different experience out here than it is on the Marine Corps team, whereas this is the the coalition joint environment, and it's really a pretty amazing work going on when you see how our different partner countries do CI. Right? What do how do they think of it in terms of how the U.S. thinks of it? You know, in each different country, some bring a little more to the fight, some bring a little less to the fight. Uh, it's easier in an operational environment like this to more closely integrate those forces, um, to integrate the different capabilities that I'm, I'm, I'm talking about. It's, it's an easier sell to you know, walk over to the OSINT team and to get support, to walk over to the SIGINT team and get support. And it's in that same situation where that threat is, is, is constantly in your face, where it's, right, you're working seven days a week, 12, 14, 16 hours a day on that mission set that allows that the energy, the drive, the integration to actually occur. Uh, and it's a model that I think can only take place in an environment like this, I think it's difficult to replicate that model at a service level uh, or at a, a DOD level. It's seeing the difference 
you know, I, I've been really blessed in my kind of short few years in the community to see um, both the, the service side, the man train equip side of of what the the field looks like, and then to also be on the I guess the Joint Task Force operational side and see what the differences is. And it's I don't I don't know if there's a one size fits all solution for how that should look like. And I know what we're doing here now for how we integrate and how we work doesn't necessarily translate over to, say, you know, uh, like 3MEF, where I'm from in Japan. It doesn't necessarily translate over to the MU and the ARG. Um, for both, the, the purposes of different services have different permissions and authorities to do things. Different coalition partners have different permissions and authorities to do something. And the, the, the people and the uniforms that we have available here aren't available in those other settings. Um, I don't know if that quite answers the question. I think I <laughs> diatribed off a little bit there. No, you, you did. I, I think you did a nice, I wouldn't say you Heismaned it, but uh, you, you framed it in the joint arena. Um, and and uh, yeah, that's, 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 that's an answer. Um, so, you know, I, I know at the, at the outset of, um, the post 9-11 conflicts, there was some concern that our human had eroded um, on, you know, on the previous watches. Um, so the image that we have associated with your article is a Marine unit doing biometrics on a, an Afghan man. Um, and I had the chance to embed with the 101st Airborne back in 2010 in Paktika province and walked the streets of cities like Mest and sat in some um, some shuras and, and got to watch how they interfaced with the tribal elders. And there was a trust there. They, they knew each other, um, and that yielded uh, intelligence. Um, so uh, as you deal with the coalition partners there, um, do you feel like we are um, – you know, we're getting that information in a timely fashion. And would you say, and, and a second part of that question is, do you think human is uh, more important in an asymmetric environment than SIGINT? Yes to both. Uh, on, the, on the first standpoint, yes. I think the, for my, in, in, in all fairness, in the, the CI human realm where I work out here, I don't work that closely with... Uh, with the actual Iraqi partners. However, from what I see, the relationship is ex extremely strong. It works uh, very well, and we do have a lot of trust with a lot of different people in the country, and it's part of the, what makes this, this work that we're still out here. Uh, this is my first deployment to this AO, and so I don't necessarily have the 10 or 12 years to go with, uh, but in that regards, from, from, from my limited window of how I see that communication taking place, it's it's very strong. Uh, you actually bring up the image that you have on the front there of the, the enrollments. is actually a good example of kind of what I'm talking about is for the capabilities that are available uh, in these sorts of areas that might not fit into other AOs. You know, biometric enrollment is one of the, the I2 capabilities or one of those technologies that I think has an extremely valuable, having seen it in action, it's an extremely valuable CI tool uh, that isn't necessarily available in other places and that doesn't necessarily fit into the current uh, CI world as we operate today. Um, the second, what was the second question? 
Um, whether the 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 ratio, um, if if you had to assign a priority between humant and sigint, because the other thing I noticed when I when I was uh, in theater there in Afghanistan was how much infrastructure there is around sigint. You know, it's like mission controls at the chaos. Um, and it's uh, obviously uh, first world problems. We throw technology at the threat, and sometimes we assume that that'll get it done. Um, and you actually frame it early in your article about cyber versus, you know, other forms of, of CI, uh, and don't think of cyber as a panacea. And, and I think that technology, that bright, shiny object, tends to be something that uh, folks can get overly enamored with at the expense of actual actionable intel. Um, so are you feeling um, like the the human is, is, and you mentioned you don't work directly with the Iraqi partners, but are you feeling like it's timely, actionable, and you know we're hearing about what we need to hear about it in, in a way that we can uh, use that information? Yeah, and I think the, the, you know, the human versus SIGINT debate that seems to be uh, common. I think human plays an extremely important role in modern warfare. And I think especially within the the Naval Marine Corps context, especially so, you know, current kind of Navy and Marine Corps doctrine, we got the, I'm going to butcher the names of the, the strategy, right? The 21st century cooperative sea power strategy. We got the Marine operating concept. We got expeditionary advanced basing operations. These sorts of littoral combats for how concepts for how the Navy and Marine Corps are going to fight uh, in that environment, which will then bleed over to the massive urban environment, which we get both in the littorals that the Navy Marine Corps deals with and in the massive urban areas out here, I think human plays an extremely important role in that because human is the only int that can tell you intentions. It's the only int that bleeds into the realm of trying to be able to predict the future uh, with the asterisk above that, obviously, with footnotes that it, it obviously can't. Uh, and there are, you know, the, the the writing and the research that goes into those Navy and Marine Corps strategies for these urban operations, for these littoral operations, highlight a lot of the challenges with SIGINT and electronic intelligence collection, the difficulties in wavelengths, the difficulties in EM signatures. Uh, and you pretty much read any any of the joint pubs on amphibious warfare, any of the Marine Corps, Navy doctrines uh, on littoral ops, on urban ops, and they highlight the importance of the human terrain system. Uh, and the, and human and CI both feed directly into that human terrain system, where nothing, nothing happens in modern war without understanding that. Uh, and, and in that regard, human, is, human and CI both are being the... the most closely connected to you know, the, the human terrain, if you will, that, that human part of the IPB of the operating environment, are the ones that can really provide you that insight. Um, hey, Christian, uh, in the uh, towards the end of the article, you have a section on uh, counterintelligence beyond the uniform, which I thought was also very very good and very interesting. Um, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Uh, two main points you make. One is about uh, the relationship between uh, the uniformed services and industry in the realm of counterintelligence and kind of 
doing a better job of safeguarding the um, uh, emerging and then subsequently fielded technologies in the military through the life cycle of their for everything from design to implementation because it passes through many different you know hands before it's out in the fleet or in the Marine Corps and also the um, in I assume this is partly from your experience at Oxford but the somewhat uh, insufficient uh, amount of academic effort that's put into the counterintelligence discipline. Yeah, so I think this is kind of one of the fascinating, maybe gaps, if you will. We use the, I, I don't know how familiar that term is in the Navy, but we use that in the Marine Corps a lot. Maybe it's just a, a Quantico sort of term that's fed down our throat. But the if we're going to think about intelligence and counterintelligence in the same terms of warfare, of offensive and defensive, right? If I'm conducting offensive intelligence operations, collection operations, I'm looking for gaps. And the fact of the matter is the CI, the CI world, kind of going back to that, the vertical difficulties, the horizontal difficulties, that's only within the tactical uniform DOD realm, right? And DOD is huge. It includes all sorts of other entities. And then in the civilian world, in the other, it includes all sorts of civilian private business and contractors. It, improves all, it includes all the different Department of State. And at, at, at this point, all of those systems, all those networks, all this information is, is interlinked. And the CI portion of defending all that information also needs to be interlinked. Uh, I think of most recently, I think it was, I think it was Bloomberg, even early in October was the first to kind of talk about, you know, you know parent Chinese microchip breach that, you know, reached everything from Amazon to Google to, to drones to other military hardware. And that's, you know, one possible company that infiltrates all those different areas. Um, you look at, like, the, the OPM breach, 20 million, 20-some million records uh, hacked and gone. That's an intelligence officer's dream. That's, in, that's tons of information throughout all sorts of, you know, not just uniform personnel, but civilian workers for the government, contract work for the government, anything that they can get their hands on. And it's the, the interlinkages between these different programs, whether it be the actual individual technologies, whether it be the different, um, you know, lines of effort, if you will, the programs, the, the actual individuals themselves, the people as they shift from the contracting world, the civilian world, back in the uniform, back to, to contracting. It's the changes in between them where if you think of that as a system as a whole, but each portion of that system, there's a different sort of CI entity responsible for protection, and each one of those different CI entities has different specialties and different capabilities. Uh, it creates the gaps that in a foreign intelligence service then can exploit the thing in gap. And as soon as you get through one, you can get to everything. One single, uh, I think I talked about it in one here uh, in the article, but right, one single intelligence breach can prove catastrophic. This isn't, this isn't like a, you're right, this isn't playing football where it's a game of inches and you just keep going one inch at a time. It's finding a seam and taking a kickoff for a touchdown. Uh, and so that's that's why I, I, I highlight that because I there's a some other the I guess the academic sort of reviews of counterintelligence that I, I I touch on too that just the you know viewing CI as an academic discipline for actually researching and talking about it 
you know, the few books and issues that uh, exist about CI, you get, you know, Voltsmeers and Masks for that back from uh, 2008, I think, 2007, 2008. It's one of the, like, maybe the half a dozen books on CI that actually exist. Compilation of, of essays and reviews basically talking about the same sort of structural deficits in CI that, you know, following 9-11 in the Intel community reforms to try and get more closely aligned and interlinked, that worked for a lot of different areas, and they got closer and learned to collaborate and get closer together. And and CI, at least from the, the corner that I'm standing in and from what it appears that other people in the CI community are talking about, has not. And that's what leads to those gaps outside of the uniform, in the, the, the private business sort of world, in the you know civilian government sort of world, uh, in the contracting world, and all those different levels. So the article is called Make Counterintelligence a Main Effort. It is in the October issue of Proceedings Magazine. The author is Marine First Lieutenant Christian Heller, who's joined us here from uh, Kuwait. Um, so how much longer do you have in this, uh, in this deployment? I got a few more months. Uh, I'll get kind of just through the New Year's, and then I'll, I'll head home sometime early in 2019. The Marine Corps treats us pretty right. You know, the the Army's hard on these guys. The Army will send guys out here for 12, 13 months, and they, uh, the Marine Corps doesn't make us stay away from our families that long. So feel blessed. Yeah. Well, uh, keep your spirits up over there, and uh, hopefully you're getting some, some downtime and, uh, um, you know, every once in a while a, a trip to Kuwait City for a for – a, uh, I don't know a, a a a Pizza Hut run, whatever. <laughs> that's you know some some American franchise uh, in in Kuwait City. That's what we used to do when I was at Al Jabber. We thought that was a, a lot of fun. You know, you'd uh, be amazed. They have every restaurant you could ever imagine in Kuwait City right now. Yeah, it's, pretty it's a pretty metropolitan place. Yeah, no, no doubt. Yeah. And if you're uh, when and if uh, if and when and hopefully soon you'll be back in Annapolis for some reason. Please come visit us up here at Beach Hall. Hey, I would absolutely love to. Uh, I haven't been back to Annapolis in years, uh, but I, I I I love Naptown and can't wait to get back and visit you guys. All right, we and look if I forward can to throw it. Out, if, can I throw out one last plug for you? Yes. I would not be doing my duty as a CI officer if I did not remind everyone listening to this podcast, uniform or civilian, to report suspicious incidents to your local CI office. Because if we don't know about it, we can't do anything about it. And that's timely with what the current events are going on here with the the, the bombings and such. Um, you know, if you see something, uh, report it. Um, that's good gouge. Thanks, Christian. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the show. Um, as we say, we'll see you next week. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.